You'll never stumble upon the unexpected if you only stick to the familiar. This is something that was said by Ed Catmull, one of the co-founders of Pixar, in his 2014 book, Creativity, Inc. It's a line that has stuck with me because it wasn't just a cliché some creative team dressed up and painted atop a doorway in their company lobby. In fact, in the early years at Pixar, it was a guide map. And from that guiding principle, Pixar produced one of the most unexpected pieces of cinema that we've seen this century. Picture this. Picture a movie that aims to articulate a powerful sociological commentary, one with themes of existential environmental impact and excess consumerism. A movie set in a dystopian future, but one that juxtaposes that setting with songs of optimism. Songs from an old 1960s musical creating a viewing experience that is equal parts nostalgic, hopeful, and haunting. Finally, imagine that this movie has little, if any, dialogue for the first 40 minutes. Drawing on influences from America's silent film era, like the works of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. It sounds like an art house project, right? Or some indie film that collected a bunch of festival awards and then made a limited run in theaters. But it wasn't. It was made for mainstream audiences. And more than that, it was made for children. There are moments in all of our lives and in the lives of our favorite companies where you can't quite contextualize the significance of their achievements until after some time has passed and you have the advantage of looking back on it. It's as if you were in this creative or intellectual zone for some finite period of time, a period where you ultimately produced your most influential, awe-inspiring work. That was Pixar in the late 2000s, at the height of their creative dominance, putting out films that had no business being commercial successes, let alone commercial successes targeted to kids. In fact, many film critics have circled three movies from Pixar's canon, made consecutively in 2008, 2009, and 2010, as one of the greatest three-year artistic stretches that any film studio has ever had. Those three movies were the aforementioned WALL-E in 2008, UP in 2009, and Toy Story 3 in 2010. All three had this Pixarism, this uncanny crossover appeal that simultaneously spoke to children and the adults that towed them to the theater. And while Up and Toy Story 3 were ambitious projects in their own right, to me, nothing has compared to what the studio was able to pull off with Wally. A largely silent film that maintained hopefulness while it imagined an abandoned Earth. A film that took direct aim at humanity's irrevocable planetary footprint and packaged it up in a family film, one centered around a love story between robots at that. Like so many creative works, Wally's conception and production was far from a straight line. 
The genesis of the 2008 film can be traced back 14 years earlier, before Pixar even released their first computer-animated feature film, Toy Story. In 1994, writer Andrew Stanton was at lunch with other members of the studio's brain trust. While everyone was throwing out film ideas for the studio to tackle in the future, Stanton posed a fateful question to the group. He said, what if mankind had to leave Earth and somebody forgot to turn off the last robot? That one little thought experiment was the inception of a science fiction film with an original working title of Trash Planet. Stanton and his colleagues would continue to retool the story, but between plot dead ends and limitations in 1990s computer animation, it kept being placed back on the shelf. In the meantime, Stanton kept contributing to Blockbusters, co-writing A Bug's Life in 1998, Toy Story 2 in 1999, and Monsters, Inc. in 2001. Now, he would intermittently go back to his dystopian robot romance film, retool it for a bit, but ultimately place it back on the shelf. Then, in 2003, Andrew Stanton would write and direct a film that took Pixar to yet another echelon of studio superstardom. Hey, Mr. Grumpy Gills. When life gets you down, you know what you gotta do? I don't wanna know what you gotta do. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. Adjusted for inflation, Finding Nemo remains Pixar's most commercially successful film ever. And a byproduct of success is often latitude. It allowed Stanton the creative independence to completely refocus his attention on his sci-fi film idea that he had often been forced to put on the back burner. So, after Nemo, Stanton got to work. Now, even for Pixar, Wally's premise was conceptually risky. We've hit on some of the reasons why already. The lack of dialogue, the overt bleakness of it all. But there was more. Wally was also Pixar's most daring technological endeavor. Stanton wanted the film, particularly the scenes on Earth, to have a very specific feel to it. He wanted Wally to emulate the look of the science fiction genre of his past, which included unfocused backgrounds, lens flares, distortion, even the framing and shakiness of handheld cameras, which was no small feat for a film that, well, didn't use traditional cameras or lighting. It was animated after all. At the time, most Pixar films had about 75,000 storyboards. Wally had about 125,000. 14 years after an idea was casually tossed out over lunch, after countless rewrites, retooling, stops, starts, and more than 100,000 individual storyboards, Wally debuted in theaters in June of 2008. Wally won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature Film, as well as several industry-revered writing awards for its screenplay. Thomas Newman's musical score received an Oscar nomination as well. 
All told, Wally raked in more than $500 million at the global box office, which would have been considered a mega commercial success for any other studio, but for Pixar, it ranks well outside of their top 10 highest grossing films. It didn't spawn any sequels. It didn't launch an empire of consumer products. It didn't inspire a theme park attraction. And because of that, Wally is often a forgotten film in the Disney Pixar library. We all know Wally as this wacky little animated movie, a family film where a robot finds love and teaches us a few lessons about environmentality and the perils of consumerism along the way. But what if that's just scratching at the surface? What if the film is actually trying to teach us a much more profound lesson? What if we all missed its deeper commentary? This is my final episode of season one, and its placement is intentional. Because Wally encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about this season. It's a story about a creative work, one that overcame a ton of obstacles to be made. And yes, it was successful, but it was also misunderstood. I'm going to challenge us to take another look at one of Pixar's least recalled films. Because by doing so, we might just learn something about who we are, about how we came to be that person, and about how we can find happiness in the future. This is Wally, and perhaps this is a wake up call. Not about the fate of the planet but about the fate of ourselves. Before we dive into Wally, let me engage you in a little thought experiment. Let's suppose I had the power to deliver to you any experience you would like. Do you want to be a superstar athlete or a famous singer? Maybe you want to have a ton of friends. I can do that for you. Well, sort of. I can hook you up to a machine and offer you whatever life you want, optimized specifically to impart maximum pleasure to you. But here's the catch. If you say yes, you are hooked up to that machine for life. You can't unplug. So you can experience the most pleasurable, most satisfying things you dream of. And it will feel real, but it's not. Life would continue on outside of this machine. You would just be unaware of it. Would you do it? Would you hook yourself up to this machine? Hold that thought. We'll come back to it. Let's head back to Wally. -E. Okay, it's probably been a while since you've seen the movie. For many of you, more than a decade. So I'm going to provide a refresher. Just as with my other film-related episodes, my overview won't be exhaustive. Just the highlights. 
after listening, I would suggest re-watching Wally in full to see some of what I'm about to discuss firsthand. And fair warning, I can't go any further without revealing movie spoilers. So, here we go. It's the year 2805, and planet Earth is no longer capable of sustaining life. Excess consumerism and environmental neglect has turned the entire planet into a landfill. A multinational corporation called By and Large, or BNL for short, appears to have a monopolistic hold over Earth, with megastores and billboards littering the planet, and virtually every physical location that we come into contact with flashing their logo. BNL evacuated the planet about 700 years ago, taking all of humanity up to space in giant starliners. While the humans were up in space, BNL commissioned automated robots to clean the planet up in an effort to create an environment that would be sustainable for life again. And of those robots called Waste Allocation Load Lifter Earth Class, or WALL-E for short, there is just one lone robot still doing his job. WALL-E dutifully performs his job every day, compacting and stacking trash into these giant garbage skyscrapers, all the while collecting little trinkets that he finds interesting. Nostalgic tokens of humanity's past, like Rubik's Cubes or jewelry boxes. When he's not working, Wally looks up to the stars, barely visible beyond the dust clouds and the old satellites, and clearly aspires for more out of his life. That's when a sleek, futuristic robot, known as an extraterrestrial vegetation evaluator, or EVE, is sent to planet Earth on a mission to scan the planet for signs of life. EVE comes into contact with Wally. And Wally shows Eve a plant that he found growing out of an old shoe. Eve immediately stores the plant in her chamber, shuts down, and waits to be picked up by a spacecraft. It's clear that over this time, Wally grows increasingly enamored with Eve. The spacecraft returns, scoops up Eve, and Wally clings on ultimately traveling to one of the human-filled starliners, the Axiom, in distant space. Aboard the Axiom, we see what humanity has been up to for the past 700 years. Pretty much nothing. Human beings have regressed into helpless, somewhat less skeletal blobs due to the loss of gravity and, well, laziness. They hover around, never standing, constantly engrossed in their digital screens and waited on by robots. By and large, effectively dictates when they eat, what they do, and even influences what color outfit they choose to wear. The humans are in a trance. Eve is transported to the captain's chamber to show him the plant from Earth. The captain is somewhat more alert than his passengers, but is still heavily dependent on robots to do his job, including his second-in-command, a robot referred to as Autopilot. 
So first, the captain is told that there was a positive reading on Earth, which initiates a video that by and large had pre-recorded 700 years ago. In the video, the CEO of the company congratulates the captain and begins telling him what the process would be to return to Earth. But autopilot stops the plan from happening. The captain becomes enraged and demands autopilot explain why it is preventing the ship from returning to Earth. So autopilot plays another video, recorded sometime after the first one from the by and large CEO before he left Earth. Hey there, autopilot. Got some bad news. Um, Operation Cleanup has, well, uh, failed. Wouldn't you know, rising toxicity levels have made life unsustainable on Earth. Unsustainable? What? Uh, darn it all, we're gonna have to cancel Operation Recolonize. So, uh, just stay the course. Um, rather than try and fix this problem, it'll just be easier for everyone to remain in space. Autopilot commands that the captain do what it says. And the captain begins looking at photographs of the former Axiom captains displayed in his chamber, spanning 700 years, and realizes Autopilot's prominent placement over their shoulder in every photograph. The captain seems to come to a realization that he isn't controlling the robots, it's the other way around. So with the help of Wally and Eve, the captain leads a mutiny over the other robots, takes control of the ship, and returns to Earth. In the process of this struggle, though, Wally is badly damaged, to the point that he is unresponsive. Back on Earth, Eve frantically replaces Wally's broken parts, but when she restarts him, she finds that his memory and personality appear to be gone. Heartbroken, she places her head on Wally's and gives him what amounts to a farewell kiss. But that spark brings back Wally's memory and personality, and the two robots unite as human beings take their first steps back on planet Earth. Wally's depth and cinematic symbolism was celebrated when it debuted in theaters in 2008. It was praised for its ability to entertain audiences of all ages while simultaneously submitting sociological commentaries and heady themes. And this is a perfect jumping off point, because I want to give you my interpretation of the film's messages. Now, I'm going to go in a particular order, starting with the themes that have been most discussed and are most overt, and ending with the ones that I think are flying the deepest below the surface. All told, we'll touch on five different, but perhaps equally important, themes. So, first and foremost, Wally does offer a scathing commentary about humanity's environmental impact. This idea that human beings are making life on Earth increasingly unsustainable has been validated nearly universally by the scientific community, criticizing everything from our waste management efforts to our climate-impairing carbon emissions. 
Wally imagines a world where human beings don't address their environmental sins in time to fix them. And you may counter this is hyperbolic. Civilization would never let things get that grotesquely bad before taking action. But psychologically speaking, issues like environmental impact are actually among the most dangerous to human life because they take advantage of a cognitive blind spot we all have, which is this. It is difficult for us to take action today when the consequences of inaction won't be felt until tomorrow, or perhaps many, many tomorrows into the future. We humans have a tough time changing our behaviors, period. And when you add another layer to that, Let's say that we won't immediately see or reap the benefits from our change in behavior. Well, sustained change becomes that much harder for us. That's why making dramatic, lifestyle-altering, day-to-day changes in how we live today so that the planet doesn't warm by another two degrees in a decade is so hard for most human beings to wrap their heads around. Next, Wally takes a shot at excess consumerism. This is another theme that has been discussed at length. So I'll pivot a bit because there is a more subtle theme in the film that lives under the umbrella of corporate greed, one that you may not have noticed the first time watching it. You see, Wally doesn't just take a shot at consumerism. It takes a shot at something often referred to as corporatocracy. Corporatocracy is the act of political systems being controlled by corporate interests. In Wally, it appears that by and large has overtaken not just one country's government, but the entire world's. If you rewatch the movie after this episode or just look for some clips on YouTube, Pay special attention to that recording I referenced earlier, the one of the by and large CEO telling the Axiom captain not to return to Earth. It is staged to look exactly like a White House briefing. Even the logo behind the podium mimics the White House logo. His podium moniker reads Global CEO, and at the end of the clip, one of his handlers off-screen refers to him as Mr. President. Corporatocracy is not a partisan issue. In America, big money interests impact both the Republican and Democratic parties. A 2018 review from Business Insider found that more than a half billion dollars had been donated to candidates or causes on both sides of the political aisle from companies and their CEOs in the last election cycle. Even if Wally's forecast that our government will one day be authoritatively controlled by corporations seems far-fetched, it does force us to ask the question, how much of our government is already controlled by corporations behind the scenes? Okay, the next theme I want to touch on from Wally one that straddles the line between conspicuous and obscured is nostalgia. This is something that wafts over us from the very beginning of the film, 
when the opening scene sets a distant future against a song called Put On Your Sunday Clothes from the 1969 musical Hello Dolly. Put on your Sunday clothes, there's lots of world out there. Get out the brilliant teen and dime cigars. The first 30 minutes of the film grows increasingly nostalgic. As we see the remains of our civilization and Wally's curiosity towards it, he collects everything from Rubik's Cubes to old iPods, and it collectively makes us long for a time that existed before that one. Nostalgia is a powerful, bittersweet emotion, one that we often experience when we think back to a past memory or period of time. It's often shown to be a mood booster. When people get nostalgic about something or someone, they actually report feelings of happiness or increased self-confidence. And that's the most important thing you need to know about how nostalgia works. It's something that political outfits and companies alike often exploit. You see, nostalgia often makes the biggest impact on people that are feeling depressed. In a study recently published by postdoctoral candidate David Newman and his colleagues at the University of Southern California, participants downloaded an app that pinged them at different points during the day. Each time they were pinged, the participants had to fill out a brief survey about what they were doing, what they were thinking, and how they were feeling at that moment. Newman and his fellow researchers found that people were more likely to report experiences of nostalgia when they were feeling depressed, as opposed to when they were in a happy mood. This is a powerful finding because it demonstrates the ways we are subject to influences dependent on the state of our mood. It's why both political and corporate marketing strategies that promise to take you back to sometime in the past typically have a more lasting impact on those that are feeling depressed or frustrated with their current lifestyle. Wally tugs on nostalgia in the same way that we fall back on it in our everyday lives. Caught in a moment that feels bleak or hopeless, we lean on past memories, sometimes real but often fabricated, to maintain our optimism or hopefulness about the future. Past tokens or trinkets or recollections with family and friends, these are all ways that we try to keep the past alive, even if it's a past that never really was. Okay, let's head deeper. Let me take you through two final interpretations of the film, two that I think are swimming the furthest beneath the surface. Now let me start with this. So at the end of the film, Eve replaces some of Wally's parts, including what appears to be his circuit board, and in doing so, she seems to reset him. His personality vanishes, and he acts, well, less human. He acts like a robot. This scene always stuck with me because I felt like there was a hidden message here. After all, Wally was always a robot. 
If his personality changes when his parts are replaced, does that mean that he became more human over time? And if that's the case, how did he become more human? Why did he become more human? The more I thought about it, the more I came to see this as another lesson the film is trying to teach us. What humanized Wally and where did his personality come from? Within this interpretation, I've come up with two theories. My first theory is that because Wally was made by humans, he was susceptible to all of the same evolutions in consciousness, judgment, and emotion that we have. In other words, he was destined to become more human over time. If this is true, this is a fascinating little commentary on how artificial, artificial intelligence could ever be. It also rings a little warning alarm that was downright prophetic for its time. That in our pursuit to build algorithms or invent technology that is purely objective, that is able to give us an unbiased or unfiltered analysis of our world or whatever we're aiming to measure, we forgot to consider that the humans programming it are, well, human. Which means they're biased. Thus, our models, our software, all of these advanced analytics sprouting up across every industry, it could all fall victim to the flaws of its programmer. Even though data informs judgment, we can't forget that judgment also informs data. My second theory of Wally's advanced personality is that his environment shaped who he became. All of the trinkets and tokens he collects, the media he's watching, it all shapes who he comes to be. There's a lot to unpack if you believe this is the cause of his evolving personality. Because in doing so, it raises questions about how we are also shaped by the objects that surround us in our environment, by what we see or read, or by what we purchase. And this leads to something that psychologists refer to as embodied cognition. Embodied cognition is our tendency to associate our physical environment with our emotional state. In other words, if I prime you to think about a warm room, a toasty fireplace flickering on a calm evening, you'll tend to interpret any interactions that take place in that room as emotionally warm as well. This is because we often don't recognize how our physical environment informs our emotional or intellectual state. And all of this means we often blur the line between the physical and the metaphysical. Now there's a couple of famous studies, and they are studies that I admit now border on pop psychology, but they do demonstrate this point. First, there was a 2008 study by Yale researchers published in the journal Science, where participants interacted with strangers and then reported their feelings towards them. Participants that interacted with strangers that were holding a warm coffee cup were more likely to rate them as generous, caring, and sincere than the strangers holding an iced coffee. The iced coffee drinkers were rated as standoffish and more difficult to talk to. In another study, participants were brought into rooms and asked to analyze pre-recorded videos of chess games. 
The participants who were brought into cold rooms were more likely to analyze the chess game in empirical terms. The straight X's and O's. But the participants that were in a warm room were more likely to describe the game in emotional terms. Heck, the very medium of film often takes advantage of embodied cognition as filmmakers put ideas into our heads about characters or about how to feel simply by altering lighting, framing, or music. And this is working on two levels in WALL-E. For one, you could argue Wally himself is a composite of the objects he's experienced. Particularly the 1960s musical, Hello Dolly, that he watches on repeat. This seems to have informed his feelings of romance. It seems to have directed how he should think about love and relationships. And secondly, and perhaps more subtly, you could argue that all of humanity aboard the Axiom mirrors Wally in that the humans aboard the Axiom have become a composite of the objects and media they experience. Here's a very subliminal decision that Andrew Stanton and Pixar made that drives this message home. WALL-E is the only Pixar movie that includes live-action actors. The president of By and Large, those videos of him they show in the film, they use a live actor, not an animated one. And when the captain looks at the row of photographs of previous people that captained the Axiom over the past 700 years, pay special attention and you will notice that the first two photos are of human beings. And after that, the pictures become more and more animated, more and more Pixar-ish. Is Wally trying to communicate that we are so engrossed in media, so bombarded by content and technology, that we're slowly becoming engulfed in our digital world? That the line between the real world and the digital worlds we build online are increasingly blurred? That we can't tell the difference between our thoughts, beliefs, and dreams, and the thoughts, beliefs, and dreams fed to us by influencers or media or content? If so, this is a powerful commentary on what it means to be human in the 21st century, and how we perceive ourselves and others. Okay. On to the final theme in Wally that I want to call special attention to. I think there's this poetic contrast between Wally and humanity, between the robot working tirelessly on Earth and the human beings orbiting the planet on the Axiom. Ultimately, I think it inspires us to ask this pretty lofty question What will make us happy? Think about it. Wally is spending all day doing what he was programmed to do, doing the job that was asked of him, and he's not happy. He's aspiring for more out of his life. Meanwhile, the human beings on the Axiom are in a place that we might regard as paradise. Anything and everything they ever want is available to them at their beck and call. They never have to work. They can spend their entire days experiencing whatever pleasure or indulgences they wish to. And yet, as we see in the film, they're not happy either. 
They're in this sort of hedonic trance, but one that is ultimately just as unfulfilling as Wally's down on Earth. There's a harmony here that I think the film is speaking to. And it underscores the fact that we human beings are terrible at predicting or understanding what will ultimately make us happy in our lives. We know that working all day, especially in what feels like a dead-end job, doesn't make us happy. That's rather intuitive. But what are we aspiring to? Because sometimes it seems like we aspire to live in a pleasure-filled world like the one humanity is living in Wally, -E, a life untethered to any restraint or responsibility. But the film's commentary is that that life is equally unfulfilling. Remember that thought experiment I referenced earlier in this episode? The one where you could get hooked up to a machine and experience whatever form of pleasure or fulfillment you can dream up, but would have to sever ties to reality to do so? So what was your answer? Would you do it? This is from a book philosopher Robert Nozick wrote in 1974, and most people say no to it. We don't want a life of disconnected pleasure. We have goals or projects we wish to pursue. But that's the funny thing. We seem to be equally dissatisfied with both options. And this is something psychologists refer to as the hedonic treadmill. The hedonic treadmill refers to our tendency to adapt to a stable level of happiness despite major positive or negative life changes. Researchers have surveyed people that have won the lottery and found that after about six months or a year, even with all the money they could ever ask for, they don't report being any happier than they were before they won it. And by contrast, researchers have surveyed those that just went through a terrible tragedy, like people that were involved in an accident that physically handicapped them for life. And after six months or a year, those participants report that they are just about as happy as they were before the accident. We human beings are remarkably resilient, and this has been imperative to our species' survival. But a consequence of that resilience is that we tend to revert back to the same stable level of happiness regardless of what happens to us in our lives. Yes, there is a threshold that human beings need to reach in order to be financially stable enough to be happy. Unfortunately, there are humans that are not at that threshold. But what the research has found is that that threshold is a lot lower than we anticipate it to be. And we often reach it, but don't recognize that we have. And we spend the rest of our lives comparing ourselves with everyone else, aspiring to reach some yet-to-be-attained level of luxury that we tell ourselves will make us happier. And once we get there, we're happy. For like a second. And then we look around that level and immediately aspire for something more. So many of us spend our lives climbing this corporate ladder without really stopping and thinking about what it's leading to. We think a certain threshold, a salary figure, or a job promotion will unlock some magic new life level. But once we attain that, we find that we aren't any happier. We climb the corporate ladder tirelessly in pursuit of independence and free time. 
And the irony is that the higher we get, the less independence we have, and the more we work, and ultimately, the less free time we have. Wally was serving as a call to adventure. It was asking us to examine both sides of the coin, the side that works endlessly in pursuit of fulfillment, and the side that has limitless pleasure and leisure time. And it was trying to tell us that both are the same, in that neither will make us happy. The film was asking us to look inside, to forget about what society tells us we should be doing, or how hard we should be working, or what we should achieve when, and ask ourselves a simple question. What will make us happy? Often the answer isn't one or the other. It's not the destination, but the journey that we so often forget to enjoy. Because we'll live most, perhaps all of our lives, on that journey. The destination may not even be real. And discovering that may unlock those magical levels of happiness we think are tucked behind salary raises or title promotions. For a film that is viewed by critics as the ascent of Pixar's creative apex, I marvel at how much we've all let Wally pass us by. It's not the most commercially successful of Pixar's films, not by a long shot, and it doesn't have a franchise of consumer products or theme park attractions emanating from it. And that's a shame because Wally is one of the most powerful animated films perhaps one of the most powerful films, period, of all time. It asked sociological questions about environmental and corporate responsibility, but it also taught us a powerful, introspective lesson about what it means to be happy. Wally will never be the flashiest or most remembered Pixar film, and there's something pretty symbolic about that. It reminds us that so much of what we experience every day might be overlooked. That the road to creative achievement isn't a straight line, and that if we're going to spend our lives climbing some ladder, we better make sure we're climbing the right one. We better make sure we know where it leads to. We didn't have to go 700 years into the future to learn it, but now that we have, we all have the power to shape what we want out of life from this day onward. To challenge whatever society is telling us will make us happier and decide for ourselves. WALL-E is a silent movie that teaches us how to communicate what we want. It's a dystopian movie that teaches us hopefulness. And above all, it's a robot film that teaches us what it means to be human. This is David Giardino. Thanks for listening. This was the final episode of season one, but don't go anywhere because there's plenty still to come. First, make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you listen to my podcast series so you don't miss any notifications about the start of season two. 
And because I'll be posting bonus content all summer, including behind the scenes of some of my most popular season one episodes and additional content that I didn't include in the original recordings. Plus, be sure to explore any of my other 14 full episodes you may have missed. From the hidden message in Monopoly to the psychology of NFL replay, from Peloton to Jurassic Park, there's a great story waiting for you. Next, be sure to follow me on Twitter, at David Giardino, or connect with me on LinkedIn, as I'll also be writing and contributing articles in between my podcast seasons. And finally, please consider sharing your favorite episode with someone who you think would enjoy it too. Or leave a review of my series if your local app store allows. One nice review or one share can make a big difference. Thanks again for listening and for all of your awesome feedback. Live the life that you want. And thanks for making me a small part of it.